Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. It's your girl, Odalis Jasmine, and y'all are listening to Hello Latino. Oh, y'all, I am so excited for this episode. I am talking to La Doctora Mariel Bouquet. She is the author of Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. She's a Columbia-trained holistic psychologist, professor, sound bath meditation healer, and intergenerational trauma expert. She wrote a comprehensive healing guide to shedding all this trauma that we inherit and stepping into a legacy of peace. This comes from her own experience being born in Dominican Republic to growing up in New York. Mariel used her experience as a superpower, her identity as a superpower to show up for her community with not just cultural nuance, but with a lot, a lot of empathy. I am so excited because we dive deep into her story so let's learn and hear from La Mujer on herself. Let's get into it. You know, that mid-afternoon cafecito always hits too. It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. And it's so, so like bad because it tastes so good. And then you just want it even sometimes when you don't need it. I just, I just want the cafecito because it's just it's so yes. good. <laughs> you get it. It's part of the culture because I feel yeah. like. I was talking to my trainer yesterday, actually, and he's like, you know, coffee's so bad for you. And I'm like, you don't tell a Latina that coffee's bad for you, okay? And it's actually so good for you, and it tastes so good. Like, I actually mm -hmm. enjoy the taste of coffee. Yeah. Like, I drink it black sometimes because I'm like, I just yeah. love the taste. So mm -hmm. if it's that bad for you, why does it cause so much happiness? <laughs> you must be asking the right questions, you know? <laughs> You know what? These are the questions. These are the questions. I'll bring him on just to talk about that. But uh, yeah. I am so, so, so excited to share the space with you today. I am excited to dive deep into your work, who you are, your story. And I always like to start these conversations with the first question. And that is, how do you identify and why? And the reason I like starting with that is one of the primary reasons I started this platform was to show the mosaic of Latinidad right? The way that we don't all come from the same countries and that every country has its own different flavor and twist to the culture and to show that we are just this beautiful mix of like history and richness and culture. And I like representing who we are. So that's why I like starting with that. So I want to ask you, how do you identify and why? Uh, so love the question. And <laughs> so I identify as Afro-Dominican, also as an immigrant uh, and as a woman. So by pronouns, she, her. And I love the question because I always, like people tend to ask me a question about 
like, so who are you? Right. Like, and, and I think the question mm-hmm. is geared towards like, what do you do? But I very often still infuse my, my identities because they're so incredibly important to me, to the work and, you know, to, to just like how I show up to this work every day, um, being not just someone that identifies as black, but also Latina and also someone that has the cultural context of the aquí, the allá makes mm-hmm. it so that I, there's a lot that always goes on in my head um, at any given point in time about how we can heal, how we can show up for each other in ways that are more humanizing and how I can be the best psychologist I can be being an Afro-Latina psychologist, knowing that that's like a, a real rarity. So I, I have to show up with a lot mm-hmm. of intention around that, that role as well. Oof. Well, I want to dive into a lot of your work is around being like the cycle breaker. Now, I want to dive deep into who you are, your upbringing, your immigration story, your Latinidad, because I want to see what cycles you broke and what cycles were present before. So let's dive deep into your story. When did you immigrate here? Tell me about what you remember of that experience. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> oh, man, you're like, that... oh, we're going right into it. Oh, we sure are. <laughs> we're going deep. So <laughs> I I actually emigrated to the US when I was five. And mm-hmm. I migrated here with my mom and my sister. We left my dad behind and the three of us came first. And that's an important detail because um, my dad didn't come. Well, my dad didn't get residency for the US until I was 21. And so it, we spent a lot of years apart, a lot of years without my dad, a lot of mm-hmm. memories of hurt and suffering and ways that, that it still actually, interestingly enough, still showed up in the ways that I kind of like maneuvered around my professional identity. Like whenever I would have to fly out somewhere, going to the same exact airport, Newark airport, where we landed was something so incredibly traumatic for me every time. And I would travel sometimes two times a week for work. And, uh, you know, it, it like being someone that came, having our family almost kind of like disjointed was something that we really kind of like um, was, was very prominent in my upbringing, that we, ha- that we had a father that loved us but couldn't be with us. But the day that I came, that was really interesting because the day that I came, I, as, as an adult now reflecting back, I'm like, that was the day, the day that I recognized, even if it was subconscious, I recognized my otherness because we came the day before Halloween, uh, October 30th, 1991. And when we came, we came at night. And so the next morning we wake up to everybody dressed as clowns and <laughs> elephants and <laughs> witches. You're like, ¿Qué está pasando? <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, oh, we are not, we're not in the same place. And it was brick. It was cold. I was like, what is this? So all of our senses were shocked. We're sitting here like, you know, with people that don't speak our language. A lot of people that you know, uh, are just not really kind of like looking like us. And then there's the added bonus, the very palpable bonus of like, oh, everybody's dressed in like some random, I don't know, and it's really hard to connect (laughs) with them. And so, yeah, my otherness was very amplified when I first arrived here. (laughs) 
I cannot imagine you're like, is this how they dress every day? Or yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I want to talk about that moment of you're five years old, so young, but I also feel like you you consume so much. Like you're a sponge, right? Like you're just seeing the world. Do you remember your life in the Dominican Republic or do you remember kind of just the leaving Dominican Republic? Like how much of it do you remember and how much of it did you miss during that period of time? Yeah. How interesting that um, that question made me tear up a little bit. I'm like, oh Mm. my goodness. Like remembering that time, you know, I'm grateful for my parents' sacrifices to bring us here, but I do recall that despite the fact that we were so incredibly poor, we were happy. And in the mm-hmm. U.S., we, we've suffered a lot, you know? And so, like, um, when you're asking me to reflect, and it's so interesting because I'm, I'm not, like, someone that traditionally cries on interviews. Like, oh. I, I tend to be really good about holding it together. But DR is just, like, it just has a special place in my heart. And I just visited and, and went, back, went back home the first time in 10 years. So it's still very like in my heart, but you know, I, the memories that I have, there was one traumatic memory because I'll tell you about that in a second, but it was, (laughs) it was just like a, like a child's trauma, but the, the predominance of the memories that I have were so incredibly tender, happy, simple things like, you know, eating like, um, we have like the, you know, the, what we call empanadas here and like pastelitos is what we call it in DR and like. Oh, we call it pastelitos too in Honduras. Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so our, our pastelitos, we actually even have breakfast ones and they add, they, there's an egg one and it is simple. It is just the masa and the egg and it is everything. It's so good. So like sometimes when I think of DR, I think of that. I think of the mani person like coming with like hot roasted mani and you just eat it like so fresh, so good and things like that, that, you know, it framed my childhood. I had like a little pet chicken. <laughs> um, I love it. Yeah. Little, little, little chicks. And like, you know, I would always like have one. And my sister always remembers that. And like, just like things like that, that feel, you know, my life now is very abundant, maybe like economically. Right. But the abundance of that simplicity was something that I I actually am like trying to st- structure my life to return to that, to return to the simplicity of four years old, three years old of like the things that just really mattered, like going into you know, the, the backyard and like grabbing a passion fruit from the tree. And then like within five minutes you have passion fruit juice and, and just like the simplicity of that, you know, it's just like so, so tender and so like pure. And, um, so yeah, so I think, you know, memories of those moments definitely make me still very tender because I'm grateful that I have them and I can hold them in my heart. And I also really desire someday to, to return. I love that. I think it's it's funny. My I talk to my mom all the time about how they moved here in search of like something different with more opportunity financially, right, for their families and generations. 
And then so many of us want to return back home to that simplicity. And she laughs about it because she's like, you know, I, we did all this for you guys to be here and like love yeah. this and have this be your home. But she was also very grateful that we haven't forgotten the culture and that it's still a very big mm-hmm. part of our lives. But she just mm-hmm. she finds it so funny. She's like, nosotros diéndonos de Honduras y ustedes queriendo regresar. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> but it yeah. is there's a there's a comfort and as I was asking you that question and and you're kind of you recalling some of those moments you were recalling a lot of feelings which I love like sometimes you don't always remember all the small details and stories and memories but it's the feeling the mm-hmm. feeling that we get of like yeah it's a simple life it's easy it's not maybe not easy but maybe it's a little more simple you know, yeah, it's a simple, yeah. it's a simple type of energy. And yeah. now you're, you're five years old and you're in the States, you're seeing Halloween costumes. Tell me about those first few years, those formative years of you being in the U.S. and kind of like learning this whole different language, culture, country, etc. You know, I don't think that they were great. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, there's always like that feeling of like, uh, what, you know, what are people back home doing? What does back home feel like? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so, and the thing about it is that I will say, like, I am definitely like one of those kids that was very like intuitive, very emotional, but quietly Mm -hmm. emotional. Like my mom always tells me that people would tell her, you have a a baby in your home, you have a child in your home, like how? Like I would never hear her because I was very quiet, but (laughs) introspectively quiet. Like I took in everything in my environment. And of Mm -hmm. course it makes me a great psychologist now, but back then it was like just overwhelm of like, you know, stimulus. Yeah. Um, So one of the things that I remember most prominently around that season of my life was that I would oftentimes feel the pain of everybody else. Like when I would hear, you know, a family member or someone maybe get denied for residency or the fact that somebody was like really struggling with like finances and and maybe like lost a job or needed like the next meal or needed to move in with our family of like, we were like 10 in a home. It was wild, right? Like there was a lot of us, um, my cousins and like, you know, at one point in time, we all lived together. Um, And so I think that all of that together with like this, like very tender, intuitive person that I was just naturally Mm -hmm. meant that I was soaking up a lot of what was happening. I even remember like we would visit the National Visa Center all the time because we were trying to gain citizenship for myself, my sister, and my mother, and then gain residency for my dad to come to the U.S. And we, you know, those those visits, I hated so much. Like, they were so traumatizing. And it's why I sometimes, you know, in my in my work, like, I like to emphasize and highlight the Latino or the immigrant experience, right? Latino too, but immigrant experience, because we oftentimes were just like, this is just what we need to do to make sure that we gain status here. Mm. But we forget how traumatizing it, it can be. It's very like intense. And I remember in the mm. National Visa Center, we would go to the immigration office and we would be like in line for hours with people from all over, Mexicanos, 
hondureños, dominicanos, puertorriqueños, no puertorriqueños, um, cubanos, um, mm. like just about anybody, anybody you can think of. Yeah. And when we would be in those lines, I remember these people were trying to get some sort of paperwork status and they would, um, they would be turned away. And sometimes they would yeah. be told, you need to learn English so you can communicate with us. And then they, would, they wouldn't be offered information in their dominant language and things like that. And I would see them in tears because I'm this like intuitive sponge. I would feel yeah. for them. You know, like I would be like, that sucks. Like, you know, and just like really kind of sit in that emotion on behalf of the people. Yeah. And of course, it didn't help that my mother used to always be like, can you translate for them? Because, <laughs> because, yeah. um, you know, so I was mean, translator. Just, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Perpetual translator. So it makes it makes the experience of being this kid that's translating actually feel a lot of guilt for when a person is turned away whether that's your own family or the people that you just met a few hours ago. And I think that, you know, that's a part of the reason why I got into this work. I'm like, you know, I want to build language for our experiences, language that really gets at what really is happening in these spaces where trauma is central. And, and so, yeah, a lot of my, you know, um, niñez did have like a little bit of that in there where I was always like, you know, a walking sponge. How, because I can see so much of like the positive of being this intuitive person and being able to hold space for feeling for other people's feelings. But when you're young, there's no boundary, right? There's no, nowhere to draw the line. How did you, how did you carry that in your, in just like your adolescence and like growing up? Like when did it become like a, is this a weakness or is this a strength? Like, when did you start to question this intuitiveness or own it? Really in my 30s. <laughs> and I'm 38. So in my 30s, I started to really cement that identity for myself. But even in my late 20s, when I started like my master's and my doctoral program, I started realizing how much I was present and holding of the emotions of the people that I was able to work with in, in a therapy room. And, and that's when it became much more palpable for me. Like, oh, I feel a lot because I, you know, I work especially in all of my training and in my only clinical position that was not private practice. I worked with literally 100% Black and Latin folks, like mm. in a, in New York. And that work was like a mirror for me because mm -hmm. I was like, you know, the people that were there were like mirrors of my own identities, of my own experiences. And so I would go into the therapy room with them and they would be telling me something that would literally sound like my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it is very hard. Like as a clinician, it's very hard to sit there with somebody that looks like your tío telling you about mm -hmm. the stuff that they have suffered and to make a separation. Very hard to literally make a mental separation and say, that's 
this is a separate person. This is not my uncle. This is not my life. Mm -hmm. And to really like sit with their emotions and carry it. I was so like fortunate to have Latin A supervisors that really helped me to differentiate. But that's the moment in my life when I was like, I, I think that this feeling that I have, this big feeling quality is something that is actually important to have when holding space for my communities. Mm. It, it is probably the first time that they've been held and seen in the ways that they deserve. And I need to just utilize that as a tool and blossom it and, and stand firm in it. Was there ever a time you didn't stand for a minute? Like, was there a time where you were like, mm, let me put this to the side right now because it's not serving me? I think when I was still not conscious of it in my early 20s, mm. I had been in the wrong, I think, uh, uh, career spaces. I actually went into media. And the reason why really? I went into Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> For five years, I spent in media. Mm. Um, and interestingly enough, the reason why I went into media is because my dad was a reporter and a DJ and a VJ oh. in DR. And I wanted to be oh. like my dad. Yeah. So it was a way that. That, that I could. I know. I, I, I love it too. And I really wanted to stay close to him in a way. Um, yeah. So I just went into whatever could keep me close to him. I would listen to boleros, like an old oh. lady. <laughs> I was so attached to my dad, you know. Um, I love it. Yeah. So I would like be, I was such a sentimental kid. Like, who, what kid do you know listens to boleros? Um, <laughs> definitely a, my dad, a tender soul. My dad would have loved you because my dad listened to boleros all day, every day, and he would yeah. just make me sit there and listen to like the music. And he would close his eyes, like, no, escucha la música. Like, he loves boleros. So my dad uh -huh. would have loved you in the house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, boleros also helped me maintain the language because, yes. because like being so young, I, I, it was very easy to lose. Everything around me started being English. Yeah. And so I, I'm really grateful for those songs too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, like I, um, I definitely feel like my 20s were moments when I was just doing an emotion and didn't know what to do with it. And I think part of my mission and my goal is to help us to develop language around what our emotional experiences are so that we're not stuck in our 20s feeling like it's this blur and this this emotional space that we want to escape because it shouldn't be we should just we should just it, it is my opinion that we should have very intentional orientation around our emotions so that we know how to navigate them and how to use them as gifts and not like you know, Girl, pathologize yes. them. <laughs> you know, I, I love this conversation because I, I literally say this all the time. Like sometimes I can't describe my emotions in English. Like I feel like there's not enough words or like mm -hmm. passion in the language sometimes <laughs> as there yeah. is in Spanish. Like sometimes there are things in Spanish that make more sense or feel more like it encapsulates what I'm feeling. Um, but I feel like the emotional language in general is sometimes missing. And I talk a lot about this on the podcast of like, in traditional Latin homes, we don't sit down and talk about our feelings. Like, 
(laughs) Maybe in some cases, some families do. I don't want to generalize, but I know there's, there's this thing of the culture, whether it's one like immigrant parents, they're busy, they're working, like they don't got time to sit down and talk about all the feelings, or it's just like, or you just don't talk about it or you're the youngest in the family so you just like don't talk to them about feelings like it feels like there's almost this secrecy in your family all the time like you're consistently battling like I know my mom's not telling me the full story or I know like we're going through financial struggles but no one wants to talk about it I know this brother is depressed but he doesn't feel safe enough to voice it like there's so much I think chaos that happens but in silence and it's just like this feeling of like I know things are not okay but we're just pretending we're walking outside like everything's totally fine Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's a weird it's a weird space to be in It is, it is. I did. And the thing is that we just didn't have language for it. And and even our parents didn't have language for it. Like we just kind of thought of it as the norm or status quo. And for many of us, it is the norm. We do have a lot of like, you know, we have some fun chaos in Latino homes too, right? So there's a lot of chaos. There's fun. There's There's chaos in all the things. (laughs) Yes, there's a lot of chaos. And I think that, you know, for the chaos that hurts us, Mm -hmm we just haven't had the language that can help us to identify that chaos as chaos that can be remedied. Like we just kind of see it as just the way things are. And we haven't had a chance to really contest these things and, and, and also identify new norms that can be more healthy. Um, Yeah. There's so much to say, right? Like, you know, with that, concept of la ropa sucia se lava en casa or, you know, not airing your dirty laundry. There's a lot of people that have had experiences within their families that have been deeply damaging and hurting and the families are not willing to touch it. They're just not willing. They brush it under the rug. They invalidate usually the people that are um, hurt the most. And it creates this cycle of pain that doesn't need to be there. I think that we can do better. Absolutely. I, it's, so, it's so interesting that we're talking about this because it's very timely. Yesterday, I had a conversation with my dad. I came over and I like heard a conversation he was having with my uncle who, God bless him, he recently got deported after 40 years of living here because he struggles with alcoholism and he got his probably like fourth DUI and it's, it's, he has, my Theo has a softest spot in my heart because I see that behind the drinking, there's just a lot of pain that he hasn't Mm -hmm. navigated. And again, it's not a safe space for him to navigate it. And Growing up, it was just the norm. Like, I said, Tio está viviendo. It's normal. And I'm yes. like, no. And I would always be the protector. I'd always run over to him, give him a hug. And I overheard a conversation with my dad yesterday. And I was like, Papi, you have to be nicer to me, Tio. Like, you're so mean to him. And he's like, well, he has to learn. Tiene que aprender. And I'm like, no. Like, be nice. And he might, he might actually listen to you. Like, mm-hmm. who knows? Mm-hmm. And... The last thing he said, it, and my dad, he's a, he's a softie himself, but I think with me out of everyone else, but he told me, he's like, no, es que tú eres, you're so emotional. Like, that's how he kind of ended the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I sat with my mom and 
it's my mom's brother. And I was like, I don't think I'm emotional in the way that he thinks. Like I am very emotional, but I also see that my Theo has gone through so much yet. No one, no one wants to talk to him about it. Mm-hmm. And my mom just started kind of tearing up and she's like, I mean, my brother, she's like, he doesn't remember his dad or his mom because he was so young when my grandma passed away and the dad wasn't in the picture. So he grew up as my mom, as his mom. And there's just so much, so many missing puzzle pieces and him always feeling like he was kind of left out of the picture with all his big sisters. And, you know, it was just, it was just a moment of me to empathize with my uncle in a way that I've never known because we don't talk about these stories. We don't talk, I didn't know all these things about my uncle. And so I say this is timely because sometimes there's these norms in the Latino culture of like el borracho, this and that, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. there's always a story behind where these titles come from. And it's a beautiful space to explore. Oh, wow. And it's so beautifully stated and I can appreciate your, you know, bringing in that element of not just compassion, but really seeing your uncle. I wonder how many times he has felt seen in that way and not seen and relegated to just the title of El Tío Borracho. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's, a, it's what I'm hoping many of us can do for a lot of the people in our families, even the people that sometimes, and granted I say this, you know, mm. with a little trepidation, but even the people that sometimes are like the ones you just can't stand. like I'm telling you right now being the person that is you know sitting in front of the couch listening to the stories of even some of the most like annoying people and people that can be (laughs) just really toxic these people are hurting too and sometimes the way that they are hurting causes hurt to others And, Mm. you know, a part of my mission is to also help those people because like I say, even in my book, I say, you know, if right now you're looking at these toxic qualities and you're recognizing that some of these fit your personality, then it's a good thing that you're reading this because there are people that need you to no longer hurt them. And so Mm. it's going to be really critical for us to also like look at those hearts and look at all they've been through and the ways that they may perpetuate harm. And I mean, like, not like violent harm, right? I mean, I think that yeah, that's a yeah. different category that we we also have to sort through. But I'm talking like the one that always like talks about your weight, whoever that is, that cousin, that Ooh. Thea, that's like always perpetuating, Ooh. you know, like you know, like weight, um, you know, like chips on the shoulder, right? Based on like the commentary, the backward compliments. Oh my god, or backhanded yes. compliments. The one that talks about your pelo bien, pelo malo. The ones that, you know, (laughs) like are like talk about your skin color because you're the darker one in the family and talk about it in a way that, you know, isn't all that loving. Even Mm -hmm. if they, you know, use loving terminology around it, you know that they're trying to say something about you being the undesirable one or the one Mm -hmm. that, you know, like maybe maybe talking about, you know, the fact that you don't subscribe to you know, certain kinds of relationships and your relationships are different, whether they're like Mm -hmm. not heteronormative or they may be different because you're like, you know, you're not like in um, ways of like relating to others that are traditional to them. All of that comes up in these like 
dinner tables or when you visit or like Mm -hmm. you're going, you know, like on the way to Misa and like all that, like all this stuff be coming up. And these people themselves have not, one, decolonized their minds because they haven't had the tools. And two, they have not had opportunity to also heal their hearts and, and spaces and tools to heal their hearts. And that burns in me. Because I remember that line in the National Visa Center, and it was every generation in that line. It was little ones, it was abuelos, and I'm like, we were all hurting, and there was no language for our hurt. There was no resource. There was only pain. There was further trauma as soon as we reached those doors and people were turning us away. And it's like, who? Have you ever like had people sit down? in your family and actually have conversations about how painful those experiences are? Probably not. Mm. We just keep it tucked in. And I'm going to tell you right now, what I have learned in my work is that that trauma festers. It doesn't go away. It just translates into other things. It becomes alcoholism. It becomes the ways that you start like talking about and to other people in your family that are hurtful and damaging. It becomes, you know, the ways in which we start developing actual chronic illnesses that are connected to stress, like heart conditions, diabetes, certain cancers. It festers. It becomes other things, but it doesn't go away. Girl, 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 girl. I'm thinking about all the comments I've had of <laughs> just like, oh, yesa, yesa pelo, yesa pestañas. Ay, te cambiaste, como te vistes. Ay, no me gusta eso. I, oh my gosh. All the different comments I would get, I was preparing for it during the holidays. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I already know mi tía is going to say all these things about how I lost weight, how I gained too much weight, how I this and that. It's, it's never, it's never enough. And I want to talk a little bit more about decolonizing your mind because that let's go deeper into that term for those who are listening, who maybe are hearing it for the first time. I don't know exactly what it means. Like give us some definition around what decolonizing your mind means. Love that question. Yeah, it really is like being able to um, look at the ways that we have been socialized, the ways that we, the things that we've been taught that could have been harmful. Right. one of those things yeah. is what you just mentioned about, you know, la ropa sucia, right? Like that that idea of not airing your dirty laundry, like when you go to therapy, not talking about your family, not talking about your family to friends, uh, people that are not a part of the family. Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of things that need to be like kind of, you know, like removed from our language removed from our minds, removed from our ideas, because they don't serve us. Because what tends to happen is that somebody might actually need help. And what they would do would be to, you know, lean on substances or or gambling or, you know, like self-destructive behaviors and sabotage their work. So many things, because they don't have an understanding that they don't have to live by that. And so when I talk about decolonizing our mind, it's really like looking at the ways that we've been socialized, whether it's through our families, if it's through our cultures and the cultural norms that we have had, if it's through the larger society, all of the things that we're taught, we have to like start questioning these things and start thinking about alternatives or thinking about completely new ideas. Because a lot of these ideas have not served us. One 
uh, other, you know, very prominent idea that we've held in the Latin A culture and in many cultures across the world, but just speaking to us specifically now, is this idea that you like hit kids and you hit them with the chancla or you hit them with the, something mm-hmm. else, even with your own like hands. And that is another like cultural norm that needs to be decolonized and extracted from our communities, right? The idea that if somebody hurts a child, you don't talk about it and you brush it under the rug and you never hold the perpetrator accountable. The idea that, you know, like um, the kids need to be parentified and like made to be like the big kids of the home that take care of their siblings. And I know that there are social factors included in this. Some, like my mom worked two jobs, right? Like I understand that my sister raised me basically. So I know that for some of us, that isn't necessarily an option, but at the very least, we can have conversations with those elder siblings and say, listen, I know I'm putting a lot of responsibility on you, and I know that it can be hard, and I'm taking you away from some of your child duties, right? And acknowledge that and validate that for children so that they don't feel like they're just being relegated to the status of being an added parent and never have language or around their emotions about it, right? So it's like when we're talking about decolonizing the mind, we're talking about let's let all that stuff go. (laughs) Let's, let's like, let's find, you know, alternate ways of like, you know, being not just with children, but also with each other as adults so that we can step into greater health that is collective among all of us. Oh, this is a beautiful segue into more of your work. You recently wrote a book and it's again, all about being the cycle breaker. What was the what was just like the burning, like, I need to do this. I need to write this book. Like, what was the origin story behind this book? Yeah, the book actually came from like, one of my followers on social was like, you need to write a book. I ignored it. She kept saying it. (laughs) Other people kept saying it. (laughs) And I was like, all right, fine. I'll, um, someone connect me to an agent. And that's kind of how that took off. Yeah, so it was a wonderful journey thereafter. But before that, I was talking about intergenerational trauma all the time. And and that's how this idea came up with people like, well, why are you writing a book about intergenerational trauma? If you're talking about it in so many podcasts, so many you know venues, we need a book. But the actual work burgeons from my own therapy room in Washington Heights with Black and Latin clients that continue to have the same story. I would literally be in, a, you know, five sessions in a day. And each of those sessions had something that felt like familiar, generational, um, like the pain didn't start with them. Some people were parents. And I specifically had this one client that was a parent and her children were being treated in on the child area. I was in the adult clinic. And the pervasiveness of mental unwellness that her children were suffering and the amount of suffering that this client, this woman, um, had gone through was something that was, it marked me forever. Like I was like, wow, the ways that all of that trauma that she ingested since she was a kid, and even before that, because her mother was definitely somebody who, as incredibly toxic as her mother was, she was also very traumatized. Uh, so you have so many generations of all of these this wounding, a lot of the wounding that was actually perpetuated by some of the same characters in the family that weren't being held accountable, men mostly. And I'm like, 
<laughs> this is like wild. And it's, it was even more wild to see how I'm sitting, you know, with the parent, but sometimes I would have, uh, we would have like family sessions with the child therapist and to see the children myself, not just hear from mom, how her children are doing, but see the children and, and their status, their like mental status. I was like, oh my goodness. Like we must help parents. We must help them to learn what trauma is, to absorb their stressors in a different way. Because look at these kids. These kids are really suffering. One of them was like, one of her kids were, was dealing with such deep anorexia that we were actually afraid we might lose that person. And I was like, this is, we need, we need something now. <laughs> and I felt yeah. so, so much of that duty to do this, but also because a lot of the texts that I've read around trauma have been created by white cis men. People who can intellectualize our experiences and make it look pretty on paper and can even speak to it, but from a detached place. They don't know what we go through. They've never gone through it. And I, I felt such a deep duty not just to create a tool for us, but that that tool had that cultural fluency, that it had like the understanding of what we as people of color go through and what we need in order for healing to take place. I, I have so many questions and so much kudos to give you as well, because I, I think for even therapy, like how did your family take it? Cause I feel like therapy and psychology, all those things, even within our own families is seen as like, ¿Y por qué andas haciendo eso? Bien americano, bien esto y el otro. Like, there's always just like this, uh, uh we don't do that in the culture. How, I'm just curious from your perspective, did you face that in your family? Was it like a question of like, what are you actually doing? Are you working with crazy people? Which I hate that term, but I think it's what the stereotype in our families and even other societies feel that therapy is. Like, how did you navigate some of those what are you doing, like in terms of your work? Mm -hmm. You know, I will be honest, it did take some years. Um, and my mom actually didn't procure therapy. Well, we, we kind of, you know, got her into it, but she didn't get <laughs> into the therapy space until she was really suffering and didn't really understand what else to do. My mom went yeah. everywhere. She went to a neurologist. I sat in that meeting. She went to a cardiologist. <laughs> I sat in that meeting. And, and the funny thing is that the neurologist was like, I kept making recommendations. And the neurologist was like, I think my prescription is for you to listen to your daughter. <laughs> but I mean, like, it's very unique that I'm a psychologist. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, I was trying to keep my composure, but I'm like, I told yeah. you so. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it was and continues to be for many of us when we're tapped out, when we no longer have anything else and there's no identification for why we're suffering, why we're physically suffering too, that finally we get help. A lot of the clients that I acquired back in the hospital were people that came in through the ER. They came in on a crisis. They had an ataque de nervio. They had the one of my 
first clients had seven panic attacks in one month. And each time she had to be transported to the ER. And then they were like, um, we don't think it's a heart attack. We think it's panic. And yeah. She didn't have the language for it. She didn't know that that was what it was. And it, it took a lot of convincing also while she was already in therapy with me after being in crisis for her to say, actually, it's panic. It took like a year because we're not willing to recognize the emotional elements of our pain because of that stigma of like, es lo loco que, you know, van a terapia or like, or that you, yeah. you could potentially be institutionalized if you say too much. Yeah. Oh. I I can't imagine being in those spaces with our community. And again, it's just so powerful knowing the communities that we come from because of your lived experience that you get to empathize with even just that. Like, I know, I know this is kind of like the way it's been done in the culture, the way it's supposed to be in the culture, but you being just in that space as la doctora, the one that's talking to them and helping them create language around it, like, just to give you your flowers, I hope you know how revolutionary it is that your presence is there because there's so many times where I like, I wish it wasn't this like stereotype to be in therapy or to go see someone or to go ask for help because our community can be so much more healed (laughs) collectively. Right. But I think you again are just revolutionizing what therapy looks like, what it feels like, what it can be. And Mm -hmm. through your book, through your words, through your work, I just know that we're going to create this whole different generation of just awareness, just awareness in the culture, awareness in ourselves. And just wanted to give you your flowers because I'm like, so impressed and glad that you're here. Um, Tell me, tell me about what this book, it really is about and why people should pick it up and read it. You kind of mentioned it to us already, but Mm -hmm. If you can give us just like a, this is what you're going to get from the book, let us know. Yeah, this book, um, it is a guide to healing intergenerational trauma, truly and through and through a guide. It is like a, a book that mirrors the work that I do in my sessions with clients. It's a book that was uh, birthed out of the ideas and the, the work that was present in in the treatment room with my patients that were that look like me and mm-hmm. a lot of it is also data it's a lot of information that we need to know information that i want to be in the hands of us right like i want us yeah. to have an understanding of when you are working with an inner child wound. It's not just your inner child wound. It's also your parents' inner child wound because the inner child is intergenerational. The pain that they suffered Mm -hmm. and they couldn't resolve because they didn't have the tools to, and sometimes even the motivation to, those those wounds become your wounds. They become recycled. Mm -hmm. And there are ways also to work to extract them from your heart and and feel Mm -hmm. lighter not just for you, but for them maybe. And of course, for for the future generations, if if you choose to have children or if you already have children, so that your children can benefit from the work that you do. There is an understanding in the book of what our intergenerational nervous system is, the nervous Mm -hmm. system that 
is not just how you internalize stress, but also how your family has internalized stress and modeled that for you. And the ways that you are also, you know, when you're fighting and everybody's like chiming into the fight and you hear everybody's loud voices, how that is also a part of how your nervous systems are triggering each other. And just mm-hmm. having that, that foundational understanding is so critical to how we then connect with each other and also how we heal, how we heal truly and sustainably and profoundly and deeply in all the things, right? Not just like, you know, kind of like a gloss over on healing, you know, just to kind of get it out of the way. This is real healing. This is like, Mm -hmm. there's a map in there about how you can start having the conversations about intergenerational trauma that can be most effective. There's an intergenerational trauma tree in the book that helps us to map all of the occurrences and the, the, the ways in which our family members have felt wounded and the ways that that has then translated onto us. There is a, an intergenerational adverse experiences assessment that reflects a lot of the things that we need to start unearthing in order to get an understanding of what really happened here. Why am I feeling so much, right? And so like all of that is there, but there's also in every single corner of the book, there are tools, but how do you work with healing? How do you heal this? How do you heal the inner child that's intergenerational? How do you start healing your nervous system? How do you start healing, you know, even the systems that continue to perpetuate trauma within our families and homes? How do we start healing holistically the whole thing? and the whole human. Yeah. How has this served you? How have you kind of holistically healed that inner child? And how have you kind of broken? Or what are some cycles that you've broken that you're just like, this is an example of what can happen to you as well? One of the biggest cycles, and I do mention this in the book, is a cycle of intergenerational guilt. I've held on to so much Mm -hmm. guilt that was my mother's guilt, that was my grandmother's guilt, that was the guilt of not being able to really kind of like help our families to survive dire circumstances. My mother was the the eldest daughter of eight. She migrated to the Mm -hmm. U.S. and she never, ever, ever stopped helping her family, every single one of them. We would actually go back to the DR once a year to visit my dad and then visit the whole family throughout the entire country. We would literally take trips everywhere, <laughs> <sighs> lengthy trips. And I think they're guilt, guilt-ridden trips, but it was because nobody could be left without something. We needed mm-hmm. to give money to everyone, shoes to everyone, clothes to everyone. And my mom would, um, there was this place that we would go to, we called it La Ropa. Everybody called it La Ropa, which was just like a secondhand, like this woman's house. And she had like a thrift store in her house. And then she would have a (laughs) bunch of stuff and you could buy it for like 50 cents. And so it would be really affordable. So we would actually pile up a lot of that stuff to then bring to the DR um, for the people that were in more need than even we were. So. You know, a lot of what that did, I think, apart from how beautiful it is, right? Like, I know my mom has a big heart and that's why she did it. But it also left us feeling like we could never have, we were never really worthy. We needed to always, like, take the clothes off our back to give to others. Yeah. And it's something that I carried even into 
my like clinical practice, like I was always like so overgiving that I actually burnt out because I was like, I must, I must, I must give, you know, I must like show up for my communities. I must be the best clinician out there because I have to make sure that I show up for us. And it, it wasn't healthy. And it was just a, a different version of that guilt. And even now, like now I'm the matriarch of my family. I'm the one that holds the highest like economical position. So I'm the one that now sends stuff back. I'm the one that now I went with a whole two maletas to DR in December. <laughs> but I went with a very conscious understanding of how I was carrying the emotions around it. And a lot of the healing that I've done around not overcoming myself with guilt, but instead doing it because I love the people, because I want to show up for the people that I love, and not because I feel a sense of duty for their survival. And I think that that's a very different way of approaching our love and remesas and things like that, that are a part of our culture, but tend to cause us a lot of deep wounds. Wow. This... I just want to bookmark, italicize, bold all of this because I think it's it's a beautiful thing to grow up and like I always give my mom so much credit. I'm like, es una adora. Like she loves to give, and it feels like sometimes I used to tell her when I was younger, I'm like, you give too much. Like, you know, you have to give us some love too. And at us by me and my six siblings, I'm like, we we exist too. Like, you know, it's not just tío, tía, primo, prima. It's not just them. But now growing up, I'm seeing how much, how much beauty there is, aside from the guilt, how much beauty there is of not having a lot, but always finding something to give. Mm-hmm. And I just, even now being similar to you, holding that highest economical like privilege, sometimes there's more guilt than there is like, oh, I want to give to give. Like sometimes there is the guilt of like, I'm here because I had papers. I was born here. I was able to go to school. I was able to do this. Like I have to give all these mm-hmm. things. I have to do it because my mom didn't have anything and she gave all these things. Like what excuse mm-hmm. do I have? Mm-hmm. And there's almost like a guilt. Like I convinced myself I have to do it. But you just saying that is like, I feel so seen in this moment because I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, to give from a place of like, no, I really want to give because mm-hmm. I love you. I want to be here for you. I want to give this to you because I thought of you. Like coming it coming at it from that angle, yeah, is so much more beautiful, peaceful, healing than it is to like say, no, I have to just give all my money to my family because that's yeah. just the way it goes. And mm-hmm. you know, Ugh, girl, yeah, you carry it differently. The emotion is different, and then you know, you carry like the interchange is carried with love and pride rather than with yeah. that that guilt and that heavy which is not helpful for any of us right i mm. used to be resentful you know about how much we needed to then extend for others in yeah. dr and you know i i think that now i see it as like you know i want my family to live with dignity I want my family to live with the understanding that I truly love them and I have the means to be able to help them and protect them. I'm going to do that because I simply believe that their humanity matters. And it is it is a different philosophy, you know, around around the work than, you know, 
gotta send because it's you know it's Christmas we have to we must and everybody's gotta mm-hmm. gather their money and like it's very different girl I will always remember this one Christmas where I thought I have to spend big money on everybody break the bank because I made it I'm, I'm here I'm making good money and I want to show everyone that I'm thinking of them and girl for like months I was paying those debts I was like what in the world did I do and that was like that was just a moment for me to reflect like I don't want to just give to give like I want to give with intention but it it's taking a long time to just get there and I I think that's another thing that I want to teach our communities is just patience with ourselves because being a cycle breaker isn't just like okay cycle's done Mm-hmm. It's was it's done with me. Like let's keep it keep keep moving. Mm-hmm. It it takes some time and it takes a lot of patience. And I'll tell you this quick story because I think you'll appreciate it as as a therapist. But I I was in therapy for like four years at the time. Well, I'm I've been in it for seven years now. But I was probably like four or five years in. And I remember showing up to my therapy session and I was like, you know, Debbie, shout out to Debbie. So, you know, Debbie, I think I think I've been lying to you for five years. And she's like, tell me more. I was like, I show up to every therapy session and I'm like, I'm good. I had a great day. I had this. I had that. And there's there was that level of you can't talk about the bad things Like you have to be grateful. You have to be grateful. And I told her, I was like, Debbie, I think I've been lying to you. I haven't been telling you how I actually feel because I feel like I have to impress you in this space because that's how. I've always felt like I had to be in my family. Like I've always had to make them proud. And so I have that same feeling with my therapist. Like I would go in there and I would just want to make her proud. Like all the lessons you taught me done, I did it. (laughs) And she just, she just smiles at me and she's like, well, I'm so happy that you have that awareness. Like, tell me, like, tell me what you want to say. And I'll tell you since then, it's still hard. There's some days I want to show up and just say, no, I did all the work. I'm good. Like, keep it moving next week. I'll see you again. And I'll tell you all the good things. But there's like moments where I sit there with her and I'm like, I am going through it. And just to even voice that out loud has been healing for me. But I, I say that because I think the work that you're doing and inspiring this cycle breaker generation, I think it's a very, very beautiful patient, tumultuous journey that we can all go on. But I think it's a it's a much needed one. And to hear it from someone that is part of our community that sees us, that is one of us, I think it's, again, revolutionary. And I want to end this beautiful conversation with a brindis. And I'm doing it with my cafecito because rebranding what brindis means. But I want to give you the space to say what do you want to cheers to and most importantly what do you want to manifest for our latina community oh wow i love this question um (laughs) i would love to cheers to um latino love i think that there's something so powerful Mm -hmm. and healing and therapeutic and beautiful about the way that we love as people. It's so pure. It's so, it's passionate, of course, but it's pure Mm. and it's like (laughs) so beautiful. And I just, I think that there, love is also what has driven me 
to want to do this work. I love my people. I love who we are. And so I, I desire that we, you know, that we cheers to, to love and how we love. And I'd love to manifest a, a world where I can really put this message out in a, in a big way. I really want this to reach all those people that were like sitting at National Visa Center who maybe never heard of this work, but would hear about it and would do it. I want it to really reach. And I am hoping that I can see it through. (laughs) Yes, you will. I am claiming it through and through. Salud. Gracias. Thank you so much for this space. And thank you Mm -hmm. for this book. Thank you for the work you do. Just mil mil gracias for just who you are. Thank you. Appreciate you. I appreciate you too. Y'all, I ugh, I could just listen to her talk all day. Thank you so much, Maria, for being here. And thank y'all for always tuning in to Hella Latino. I'm going to see y'all next week for more Cafecito and Chisme. I got lots and lots of great stories for y'all. For all Hella Latino updates, follow Hella Latino Podcast on Instagram. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or my website, olalijasmine.com, for more information. Con muchísimo amor, tu amiga Nureña. Abrazos.